Hello and welcome to The Stack. On today's show, we play highlights from Monaco's Quality of Life conference in Paris earlier this month. We look at the state of French media and the power of an image. Plus, an exciting new literary European publication. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Monaco hosted its seventh Quality of Life conference in the French capital earlier this month, with a stellar lineup of guests. Today on The Stack, we play highlights from two panels that will connect you with you listeners. The first one, hosted by Monaco's Tyler Brulé and Sophie Grove, looks at the French view, from media to politics. From morning radio and TV news to its impressive print industry, how has it remained so inventive? Veteran journalist Christine Ocran and Le Monde's CEO Louis Dreyfus join Styler and Sophie for more. I think quality journalism in France still has very high standards. Of course, with print media, and Louis has actually managed to make Le Monde Group, not only the daily, but several news magazines, a success, and a business success, which is even more difficult. And I now do more radio, and it's very interesting that the oldest media, which is radio, is actually in a sort of rejuvenation phase, which is fascinating because it allows for more time, as you pointed out. I have a one-hour-long program every Saturday morning about foreign affairs, one hour. And that's a luxury. I mean, it's another kind of luxury. And Louis, it's interesting to talk about Le Monde because in many ways we're nostalgic for that format, the, the beautiful print, the, the kind of commitment to print. But you've been tasked in many ways with reforming this, this kind of wonderful bastion of journalism and making it um, diversifying, but also modernizing. Can you talk us through that process a bit? I think there's several things that we can keep about our track records about the last, uh, the past 10 or 11 years at Le Monde. First thing that we, we chose with our shareholders to invest in content and saying, and it was a, a bet, saying uh, the more journalists we will have, the better the newspaper will be, and the more revenues we will have. At this point of time, many media shareholders were thinking the contrary. Too many journalists working, not enough. We should downsize the editorial staff, we will save money, and we'll save, and we'll make this newspaper profitable. We showed exactly the country, will invest, and we'll put more and more journalists. 11 years later, when I took the arm of the group at Le Monde in 2010, there were 300 journalists at Le Monde. Right now, there is 520 journalists at Le Monde. So it's a huge change. It's obviously more capacities to cover news, to do different formats. So we, we launched M, which is a huge success, even in terms of circulation, with an increase of 30% of circulation, but in terms of advertising, in terms of renewal of our readers. And so there's budget to get it to Zurich, is what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Okay, good. We will have a, a private car too to transport um, your issue of AM every week. <laughs> Tyler, I urge you. So something that it was interesting and I think it is quite gratifying for the staff is that if you invest in the staff, if you invest in talent, as Bruno was saying, 
in a luxury goods industry, you may find a business model. And in this case, the more you invest, the more you gain subscribers, you must gain revenues, so you invest more, and you create a gap with your competitors. Like this year in 2022, my revenues from digital subscribers of Le Monde will be big enough to pay for the entire digital stuff of Le Monde. Meaning if the print edition of Le Monde will stop today, I'm still profitable. We are continue to invest in the print. We launched um, a quarterly magazine called The Taste of M two months ago. But we know that at some point of time, we need to be independent from this legacy industry. And we made it. So that's, I think, the question is, how can you keep a momentum, quite active momentum, but protect your brand? And at some point of time, it's difficult for the staff. So you need to recruit new talents, as Bono was saying but you know also to protect your staff that where we have plenty of talents that will discover a podcast, will discover audition snapshot, and how you can make the two, two move. It's you, you need to invest in what you do, and you need to go to reach a new audience. And, and I think that's what we, we made. But New York Times did it in the US. The Guardian is quite successful right now. So in this point of time, at least in the Western countries, you have one or two media, legacy media, print media, that's making it. And I think it's, it's a very, very good news for our society. I want to ask both of you about budgets. So, I mean, Christine, you've seen what's happened with the BBC over the last week. Of course, announcement of cuts of up to 1,000 staff, closure of some channels, etc. Using the word luxury again, is France more in a luxury position because of the French language? Do you see more of a preservation, a mandate, uh, maybe that they're not going to be shuttering bureaus, etc., because you have to preserve French, where, of course, English language is a bit of a crowded space. Okay, of course, there is still a public service mandate for the BBC, uh, but how does it look from that position right now when you look at around the radio and TV newsrooms? Well, I think we're very lucky not to have Boris Johnson as prime minister. <laughs> I mean, that would be my first impulse. <laughs> And obviously, uh, it's a political uh, fight against the BBC, which is still viewed, uh, you know, in this country and around the world as remarkable. Although on Brexit, I found them a, a little bit ambiguous. That being said, the situation here is not easy at all. And when it comes to public service media, which is the one I work for now, the government is about to suppress the tax that each French who has a TV set is supposed to pay. It's, it's a the small amount, fee, yeah. but it's a, a license fee. And so the idea that there won't be that resource for Radio France and for the three, four TV uh, channels, public channels, that will be suppressed, raise a huge question because it means uh, certainly more advertising. And what does it say actually about the political meaning of such a move? And that is about to take place. It was very much the scenario uh, before the presidential election. I th it's not an issue that the, the public seems to be very concerned about. They're obviously quite relieved not to have to pay that tax. But still, for us, it's a concern, not only in political terms, but also in terms of sheer financing. 
I was just going to just pick up on that, Sophie. Is that right? Just, just you've launched an English language, or you're pushing towards English language as well. This is just a question of, of course, brand growth and reach, or also seeking more revenues potentially as well. I think there's two things on, on your question. First, on the French influence, before launching our English edition, we launched an edition covering Africa. We have much more journalists covering Africa because we thought that uh, for Le Monde, in terms of development, the next step would be to go to a French language. And what surprised me in terms of uh, influence, it was easy for me to find private financing, but at no point of time I can get French subsidies to develop my activities around the world, which is quite weird. It's in France, it's, uh, we have a public support, but it's much more easy to find uh, subsidies to pay for a new printer rather than to invest in my development in Africa and in, in terms of soft power. I would be the French government, I would push for that. And my first support for my own development in Africa the Gates Foundation, which is nice but surprising from a French point of view. Knowing that we have quite important market share in terms of digital subscriber because we have a 70% market share in France, meaning 100 new subscribers in the French media, digital media, 70% of them are coming to Le Monde. So I know that at some point of time I would reach a ceiling. So the question is, what is my next step? So we launched months ago an English edition for Le Monde. So you have now a daily edition with 70 stories a day, translated, edited by your English-speaking staff. And that's, uh, I think it's for the group, for Le Monde, for Le Monde staff, it's quite promising to see that you can reach a much larger audience. And that's new. And to be the first media brand around the world to have an English-speaking edition when you're French, it's important for us. And I think it could be huge in terms of development, reinvestment. And for the people in America and in England, in Scandinavia, to know what is the French point of view, or the European point of view on Ukraine, on French style, on Middle East, on crisis in Asia, it's quite important. And it's a huge development for us, yes. You mentioned that it was very good news for society to have a thriving print industry. But it's interesting to think about, I mean, this panel is about the French view, but really it's about the French model in many ways, because as you mentioned, you have subsidies given to print. And, and France is in a peculiar situation of, of subsidizing the Humanité, the communist newspaper, on, yeah. and across the spectrum. And also who owns the print industry and the media networks is changing pretty fast in France. I wonder, Christine, like, how that affects the media. And Louis, you've been a big champion of media independence, mm-hmm. uh, despite having three sort of owners of your group who've, who've famously fallen out a few times. But I wondered how you think the ownership and structures affects your work. <laughs> I think there's a contradiction. That's, we need a huge amount of financing to transform our industry. To make Le Monde profitable, I needed 130 million euros. I could obviously not have that through my readers on a, on a short period of time or through subsidies. So I need to get shareholders, big shareholders, meaning that you will have oligarch around your capital structure at some point of time. But not Russian ones. Not Russian ones. But, but, but we need that. 
So the question is in, in, in terms of governance, how you make sure that your shareholders cannot interfere at no point of time at your content. But to say that we need to avoid those kind of shareholders is taking the risk not to transform our industry, not to reach larger audience. Thanks to these 130 million euros, I'm now I'm profitable. I double my paid circulation. Ten years ago, I was selling 250,000 issues a day. Now I'm 500,000 euros. I double the digital staff. So I use this money to expand my group and do a better coverage of the news. So it was useful. The question is, in terms of governance, are their shareholders, or do they think that they own the content? And that's where there is a fine line to find. And the second panel, hosted by Monaco's Andrew Tuck and Chiara Rimela, explores the power of an image. In a world where we are overwhelmed by images and everyone with a phone is snapping and posting, why does the right photo still matter? Monaco also just published the Monaco Book of Photography, celebrating the great shooters who have appeared in the magazine. Two of them were Rana Effendi and Zed Nelson, who joined Andrew and Chiara on the panel. I had a friend who passed away, Adrian Gill, he's a British writer, and he always used to say, you know, because referring to the fact that everyone takes pictures and there's citizen journalists and there's, you know, people just constantly snapping away everything around them, he, he said, would you ever go to a citizen dentist, you know? <laughs> so in many ways, I think what you said is, is really correct. It's sort of trusting in the hands of someone who has been doing it and who's been focusing on this work for their life because it, it's a life choice. You know, for me and for Zed, of course, it is a life choice. And I think that's something that's not just a job. It becomes a passion. It becomes part of you. Every person we meet is part of our personal history. Every place we go to, that's part of our own history. So I've got the same question for both of you. Reina, let's go back to the very basic bit. What do you take with you? What camera do you take? When you look through that lens... How are you framing up the world? So tell us a little bit about the kit that you take with you. Well, I use a very, very old camera. It's from 1972. It was actually invented in the trenches of the First World War because of the the way it photographed with a parallax. It's a a camera called, a German camera called Rolleiflex. It has a twin reflex. And I look down, and the reason why I love this camera is because it's not in the face. I'm kind of more in a kneeling position, and it, it... helps the, the person in front of me kind of relax. And I can, I can also look at them, you know, directly and take a picture. It's also a very quiet camera, so I can sort of tiptoe around the subjects without really disturbing them. So that, that's, for me, is, is important. I don't like to be kind of in the face. Of and Zed, the same question for you. When you, what kit do you take? And, and is it, I think it's, we find it as journalists as well, when we have one of these in our hands. You, you, somebody who's very eloquent and relaxed, you move this towards their face and suddenly they, they, they freeze and you have to win back trust and you have to take your time. When you lift a camera, it's the same thing, I presume. How do you keep that moment of trust going? Um, well, I mean, funnily enough, I use an old film camera as well, which you also look down on. So sometimes the, the equipment is important. Not to say, you know, I don't use a digital camera occasionally. But uh, going back to your first question, 
I think it's changed. You know, this idea of coming back with a single amazing image has been eroded by the fact that you know, iPhones take amazingly good pictures. And citizen journalists, I just saw actually a Ukrainian soldier's pictures, and they were incredible. I mean, he may have actually been a photographer, I think, before he was put in the army. But I think it's important more and more that we spend time on projects, sometimes years. I mean, the, the three books I've done have taken three to five years. I mean, I do other things as well. But I think that's the key, the amount of research you do and time you spend. Not to say you spend five years on location. I'm not talking about that. And so the equipment is... I mean, we're all slightly fetishistic photographers as well. It's not that we, we don't care about it. And I just bought a Hasselblad sort of digital, thinking that that might wean me off film. But it hasn't. It's just a very expensive toy at the moment so you know you tiptoe between these two worlds where the equipment matters but more and more I think it's the time spent and actually finding magazines or commissioners who will bother to invest in any time at all because obviously it it takes time and money to, to do a story properly and that's kind of the biggest issue One thing that I would like to ask is, we've talked about how this isn't a profession, but it's your life. It has been your life. It has taken you around the world, and it has taken both of you to areas of conflict. We've obviously heard the tale, um, Zed, of you and Tyler's reporting in Afghanistan. Uh, Rena, you've been to Nagorno-Karabakh. You were recently in Ukraine. What has brought you to this profession in the first place? What has attracted you to this work? And what has attracted you to traveling to these tough places? Uh, storytelling. I mean, I see photography as a medium to tell stories. And, and uh, for me, I've always been fascinated with human stories and places of conflict are where these stories are extremely poignant, compelling, and powerful. And that's, for me, is the most important element to it. I, I don't really consider myself a conflict photographer. I, I just happen to be in conflict areas telling stories of the people in the aftermath of the, of the war or, you know, recently in Ukraine, I was visiting villages that have been liberated after the Russians have pulled out and doing stories about people who lived through the occupation, the 30 days of occupation and what they've experienced there. A little boy who kept a diary of the occupation and his parents were shot, you know, things like that. So it's not really the, the news, the fast pace of news that attracts me, but more uh, stories that will stay with you when the new cycle ends. What about you, Zed? I think I feel the same way as well. It's about trying to tell a story, and for me, that's, uh, I've ended up making films as well because it's a way of telling a maybe more complex story at times. Or working on a book where, I mean, after the sort of Afghanistan misadventure that we had, I ended up doing a book about America's sort of love affair with the gun because I became interested in looking at where the source of most of these weapons come from. So that turned into a sort of two- to three-year project which really kind of went into the psychology of a nation that's kind of embraced gun ownership to that extent. And that's still obviously playing out now, you know, to, to deadly consequences. But what's interesting when you see those pictures from Gun Nation is, you know, that... I don't know, it's not that you're mocking people or setting people up. In fact, there's a huge amount of trust in the people sitting for these photographs. When a, a guy turns up from London, they haven't got a clue who you are, how do you persuade them to get out their entire gun collection to show you? Right. Or, you know, because you're certainly not duping them. They're, they're, they're part of the process. 
True. I think uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, people ask, how do you take photographs or how do you get someone to agree? And a lot of it is kind of, I mean, it sounds manipulative, but it's basic psychology. It's how you present yourself to them. I'm never dishonest about what I'm doing, but I might hold back some of my own views. So I explicitly tell them what I'm interested in, but I don't give them my opinion of it necessarily. And then, for instance, in the, the American gun culture project, I think some of the images were cropping up, what I realised that I, in order to win people's trust, I would kind of build a studio. So I'd go into a gun shop, and if I asked anyone to photograph them, they generally said no. But if I could make friends with the owner and build a studio with lights and a backdrop, and then a customer came in with their guns, they always said yes, because I'd become kind of a, you know, a sort of travelling roadshow, and they just thought I was part of the shop in a strange way. And that was a psychological thing. Yeah, I think this is very true what you're saying. I think one of the things I learned as a photographer over the years is not to make judgments, is to be as non-judgmental as possible. We're there to tell their story, and we are not including our opinion in it, so we are more on the observer's side. So that's the key thing. So Raina was telling me a story over dinner last night about about this boy whose parents had been shot, and he was now living with his aunt, I believe. With his aunt, yeah. But just tell us, uh, because when you are in that situation, so the, the boy had been collecting things, and instead of now collecting cars and toys, he was collecting pieces of shrapnel from around the town, shrapnel that you know, had been involved maybe in killing his parents, and he was making a little collection. He was collecting as little boys do. But surely, how do you not... You know, I would cry. What, what, how do you not give away all yourself in that situation? I mean, again, you have to hold back because otherwise it becomes uh, impossible to work. In the situation, it was actually a story I came upon accidentally. I was interviewing his aunt, and he came up to me in a very serious way. He tapped on my shoulder and said, would you like to see my collection of shrapnel? You know, and I said, yes, and I followed him, and then I spent you know, an hour just talking to him, and then I realized he kept a diary of the war where he described every day what his every day was like during the occupation. And the car where his parents were shot with bullet wounds in the front you know, window was parked 300 meters outside his home because the police was too busy to tow it away, and it was still there. So, I mean, it's a heartbreaking story, but you have to really focus on the fact that you are there to tell that story. So, of course, I have emotions. I'm not a robot. Of course, I come back to the hotel room or home and I'm thinking and I don't sleep the night, but I try to, as not present in it as possible so that I can be the vehicle to tell this boy's story. I have another question about ethics, I guess, of photography, because we've talked a lot about your, I guess, journalistic work and the storytelling work, but how much does the search for a beautiful image come into it? Does the journalistic instinct come first? Does the search for the aesthetics for a beautiful image come first, and how do they balance each other out? I think it's very personal. I mean, photographers are very, very different. I do think the aesthetics are important, but sometimes I, I kind of worry about that. You know, you can overdo it or over-worry about it. But, yeah, they do. I mean, they are, you know, you're asking people to look at an image and you're last asking them to spend time thinking about it, and the longer you can grab someone's attention and the more you've succeeded in a way. So it's a sort of tiptoeing around between subject matter and the way you kind of capture an image. Sometimes I worry that... that there's such a beauty of symmetry or something in an image and 
that can become too much. But yeah, it is it is important. I mean, your pictures are very beautiful, I'd so say. Yes. <laughs> And now we turn our attention to a new magazine, as the European Review of Books launched this week, both in print and online. From Amsterdam, the publication's editor joined Emma Nelson to tell us a little more about the title. It's always a celebratory day when a new magazine arrives. How are you feeling? It has been a long evening of updating our quite robust and layered content management system. So I'm on not much sleep, but still quite excited about the day. Now, the idea of managing a content management system seems a far cry from the glorious scent and cracked spine of a new physical magazine. Tell us a little bit about what will be in its pages when we open it. It contains, and first I should mention that the print edition does indeed have a wonderful spine to crack and it has 20 some essays long and short a lot of reviews of books naturally including reviews of as yet untranslated books but also essays fiction poetry art quite a lot of photography it is sprawling by design And is that intentional? Because it's an enormous project. I think when you look at your website, you talk about the fact that you're dealing with books, you're dealing with review, and you're also dealing with Europe. And you say, there are a thousand Europes. I mean, how do you approach this? The title of the magazine, I see as both a kind of commitment and a kind of game. It is a commitment in the sense that having a capacious, adventurous, sometimes avant-garde literary magazine that calls itself the European Review of Books seems like a good thing to exist. It's a game because once you call something the European Review of Books, there's something quite up for grabs about it. And particularly around that label European, we even jokingly called ourselves the post-European Review of Books. Our commitment is to just define that term as broadly as possible and not be comprehensive, whatever that would even mean, but to be, first of all, critical and second of all, adventurous and open. So just tell us about the two or three items that we will find in the first edition that's made you want to make a splash. I can give a few examples of what I see as good ERB, European Review of Books, essays. There is, for example, a long review of an as-yet-untranslated global history of Ukraine written in Ukrainian for Ukrainian readers that internationalizes Ukrainian national history. That's the kind of long review essay that one wouldn't find in other places. Another essay that I think is representative is a political essay in a way that considers the literary corpus of Robert Habeck, the German vice chancellor, who, in addition to being the second in command of Germany's of Europe's largest economy, is also a writer with a academic dissertation and many novels to his name. And so an essay that considers him from that literary perspective seemed like a good gambit for the first issue. But there's also things like a poem translated from Korean that appears in both Korean and English, an essay about moving from Ramallah to Berlin that appears in both Arabic and English, as well as some Spanish and German experiments in multilingualism. Tell us a little bit more about why you decided to make this magazine, because it sounds as if it's, you know, you're, you're fulfilling an incredibly international need. 
It arose from, I guess, a feeling, sometimes vague and sometimes quite pointed, that there was an atmosphere that needed to be thickened because whatever European culture is filters through national or metropolitan sieves, there is something of a void or something of a vacuum, certainly inhabited as well by other wonderful literary magazines that we are devoted readers of, but a sense that having this strategically multilingual magazine would, I don't know, first of all, discover new writers, second of all, deprovincialize an intellectual sphere that is more and more English only. The idea that an English only intellectual sphere is somehow inevitably provincial, even though I want to add that I love the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books and other reviews of books. These are tremendous magazines that I see tower before me whenever I call something the European Review of Books. But to play that language game, to take the strange ubiquity of English and animate a multilingual intellectual environment. George Blaustein, the editor of the European Review of Books. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24 and the very best of luck with your new publication. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to email me at fp at monocle.com. We're back next Saturday. And meanwhile, you can always listen again at monocle.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also subscribe to Monocle Magazine on our website as well. Before we go, a little song for you. This is Minuit with Paris Tropical, remixed by Casey Lambest. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Paris trop chaud, ramapo sous le soleil de juin. Paris consume les Parisiens.